Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number three, Genesis chapter two. All right, let's just uh, kick off today by uh, reading Genesis chapter two um, to get things started. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter 2. Let's see. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, along with everything in them. And on the seventh day God was finished with his work which he had made, so he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed that seventh day and separated it apart as holy. Because on that day God rested from all his work which he had created so that it could itself produce. Now here is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. On the day when Adonai, God, created heaven and earth, there was as yet no wild bush on the earth, no wild plant had yet sprung up. For Adonai, God, had not caused it to rain on the earth. And there was no one to cultivate the ground. Rather, a mist went up from the earth, which watered the entire surface of the ground. And then Adonai God formed a person from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, so that he became a living being. Adonai God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he put the person whom he had formed. Out of the ground, Adonai caused every caused to grow every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The river went out of Eden to water the garden and from there it divided into four streams. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds throughout the land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The name of the second river is Gichon. It winds throughout the land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It is the one that flows towards the east of Asher. The fourth is the Euphrates. Adonai God took the person and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. Adonai God gave the person this order. You may freely eat from every tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You're not to eat from it. Because on the day that you eat from it, it will become certain that you will die. And Adonai, God said, it isn't good that this person should be alone. I'll make for him a companion suitable for helping him. So from the ground, Adonai, God formed every wild animal, every bird that flies in the air. And he brought them to the person to see what he would call them. Whatever that person, uh, whatever the person would call each living creature, that was its name. So the person gave names to all the livestock, to the birds in the air, and to every wild animal. But for Adam, there was not found to be a companion suitable for helping him. Then God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the person. And while he was sleeping, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place from which he took it with flesh. The rib which Adonai God had taken from the person, he made a woman person. And he brought her to the man person. And the man person said, At last, 
This is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. She is to be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is why a man is to leave his father and mother and stick with his wife and they are to become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Here we discover two important fundamentals. First, that God has blessed and made holy one day per week, the seventh. And second, that He rested in that day so that all that He had created could itself produce and reproduce. And the first part of this is pretty straightforward. God created everything in six days. It was complete after six days. There was nothing more to create after six days. It was 100% finished work after six days. Are we getting the point? So he declared the seventh day as holy. And he blessed that day and he separated it and he divided it and he set it apart and he made it different from all the other days. Now you might find it interesting to note that the Hebrews only assign a name to one day of the week, the seventh. They call it Shabbat, from where we get the word Sabbath. The other days of the week are only assigned numbers. First day, second day, third day. Now let's take a look at that word that's typically translated as rest. As in God rested in that seventh day. The Hebrew word used is Sabbath. Now note its similarity to the name of the seventh day, Shabbat. The word Sabbath means to cease, to stop, to desist, to quit working. Now rest might be the result of this, but it's not really the meaning of the word. What the Hebrew sages say it most points to is quitting your normal activities. It doesn't mean that you stop doing everything. In fact, there are several words in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that are translated as rest. But they each mean a little, slightly different things. For instance, the Hebrew word nachan, is usually translated rest, but it more means to com- to comfort or to console. Nachan is the root word for the name Noah. Noah. Another word, Hebrew word for rest is Sh'an, which means to lean against something. Then there's Shemat, which means to throw down or to, to just lay down. And there are others. But here in Genesis... The word is Sabbath, and it means to cease because creation was finished. Now, you see, up and through day six, the universe and the earth was a beehive of activity. God's activity. However, God didn't create something that had to be constantly recreated or tinkered with. No, he created something 
that could produce and reproduce without further direct creative intervention. This is why Jesus tells us to accept Him as Savior and then rest in Him. When we are recreated as a new being upon our salvation in Him, we're 100% complete. We don't have to undergo further recreation. We need to cease our human works that, that aim for those to make us acceptable to God, to be holy, because everything that needed to be done on our behalf to become acceptable to God was completed, just in the same way that creation was. But there is also something else very special about that seventh day. It's blessed and holy. God didn't simply commemorate a day, like we would name a street or put up a statue or, or, or remember a dignitary or a president's birthday. Shabbat is a very special day, a holy day in which he takes special delight. God said that he kadosh that day, that he consecrated it. This means he set it completely apart from any other day. This is a good opportunity, I think, to address a pet peeve of mine. There is one authority and only one who can consecrate, meaning to declare anything holy. God Almighty. Man, we tend to play fast and loose with that word holy and often make it a word that simply denotes something of God or something that we've determined has special religious significance. Holiness is accomplished exclusively by God's fiat. It's by God's decision, God's declaration, God alone. For mankind to believe that we can declare by means of our church government or by our own ideas something as holy is chutzpah beyond the pale. Do you desire to know exactly what's holy? It's those things in the scripture that are specifically called holy. Nothing else is holy. The problem with what we have done as the church by throwing the designation holy on everything that suits us is that it's greatly watered down the impact and importance of that word. Holiness is a lost term. Later on, we're going to get a better picture of just how important of a day and how holy Shabbat is to God and therefore how critical its significance ought to be to us. So here's something I'd like you to hang on to. The Sabbath was not first given to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Notice here in Genesis, Shabbat is the actual name for a specific day of the week. Shabbat is the name of the seventh day that God set apart as holy. The name embodies its purpose. 
One of the reasons often given why the church does not observe the seventh day Shabbat, or in some people's view, the church has changed the Sabbath to the first day of the week, is that the Sabbath was given to Israel. And therefore, it's only intended for Israel. Or it's taught that Shabbat was simply part of the laws of Moses. That is, that Sabbath observance is commanded in those rules and ordinances God set down on sit down at Mount Sinai shortly after they exited Egypt. And because around the late 2nd century AD it became a goal of the new Gentile dominated church to abandon anything that seemed to apply to the Jewish people, eventually by the 4th century the church officially abolished the Sabbath. Now some of you may be questioning that last statement. Did the church abolish the Sabbath? But all you need to know to do to know that this is the truth is to read the actual church documents from the several meetings of the ecumenical councils governed by Emperor Constantine. Specifically, read the Council of Laodicea document, Canon number 29 is established in the middle part of the 4th century AD and you're going to find that the church explicitly declared the Sabbath to be a Jewish holy day and therefore the church should have no part of it. The council decided it would be better to end the practice of Sabbath observance altogether and begin an entirely new one. This new observance was to take place on the day of the week that the Messiah arose. The first day of the week. Thus the council of Laodicea declared that Sabbath observance as well as meeting together for worship on the seventh day was to come to an end. Instead, communal worship should occur on a new day of the week. The first day of the week. Which was already the standard day of meeting together to worship the most widely accepted and politically correct God of the Roman Empire, the Sun God. This is why the first day of the week is named Sun Day. Ever wonder about that? Because it was the Roman Empire's set-apart day to worship the Sun God. And since this newly minted celebration needed a name to replace Sabbath, that new name was the Lord's Day. So what the majority of the institutional church has been practicing for 1700 years is not a Sabbath that's been moved from the seventh day to the first day, rather, it is celebrating an entirely different observance established by the Roman Church at the Council of Laodicea in 364 AD at the direction of the then current Emperor of Rome, Constantine. And by the way, this fact is not disputed by Christian scholars. The heads of religious governments of all the great Christian denominations like Catholics, Protestants, Greek Orthodox, Anglican, all the others agree that what I just told you is factual 
and that the church long ago made a decision to stop observing the Sabbath. Although a few do hang on to the notion that what they did was to declare the Sabbath can be any day we choose. To sum it up, we find that in reality, God established the Shabbat immediately upon finishing His creation, as we've just read, long before there was such a thing as an Israelite. So whatever your doctrine on the Sabbath has been, just get it straight that the Sabbath was not something given to and reserved for some specific group of people, like Israel. It is simply historically and scripturally inaccurate to say that the Sabbath was first given to Israel. It was given to humanity in general immediately upon the finish of creation and we just finished reading it. Well, after the great flood, because mankind had again become so wicked and pagan, apparently only a few humans continued to honor God's Sabbath. So God found it necessary to reestablish the validity of the Sabbath for mankind. In fact, God wanted to reestablish all of His principles that had always existed. And He chose to set apart a group of people, an especially chosen nation, that He would use to serve Him and to achieve this purpose. And that nation turned out to be Israel. Now one of the myriads of things that God told Moses to do as the leader of this newly formed nation of God, was to bring back Sabbath worship. Observing Shabbat, the seventh day, was to be a sign, we will be told, of all those who were members of the congregation of people who trust God. That is, Sabbath observance was to be the outward indicator of all those who gave their allegiance to God. In turn, such observance also indicated all those who God declared as sanctified, as holy. Okay, so we move further into chapter 2. Please note what happens is that we kind of back up a little bit. And so some blanks are filled in and other facts are reiterated and then built upon. Now I'd like you to take special notice of something that is again fundamental but I'm not sure I've ever heard it talked about in in church it's part of a pattern that's going to be repeated all throughout scripture well, well into the New Testament and it's the importance of the direction east from here on in our studies I want a little bell to go off in your head whenever we encounter the word East in the Bible. East has great spiritual significance. It's almost always, not always, but almost always, associated with holiness. And it is key for us to gain deeper knowledge for God's truth by recognizing the purpose of the direction East. Now, did you notice that in verse 8, God planted a garden in what part of Eden? The east part. 
Now pay close attention. The Garden of Eden is not the same thing as the Land of Eden. Or just Eden. The Land of Eden is a large regional area which has definite borders. The Garden of Eden is a specific and separate area within the land of Eden. In fact, we're told the garden was placed somewhere in the eastern part of it and it was in the middle of the garden that the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life were planted. God tells Adam that in this fabulous garden which will provide for Adam's every need he's free to eat anything he wants probably an enormous variety however he is to regard the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil as death itself now notice that Eve did not even exist yet when this instruction was given to Adam It was given to Adam. He bore the responsibility to carry it out and to see to it that she did as well. Now let's consider Adam. He was not created inside the garden. He was created outside the garden and then subsequently placed into it. As it says in verse 15, then the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Adam or Adam is a Hebrew word that means man or or human. It also is the root word for the color red and for the word earth or soil. In Hebrew the word for earth that is dirt, soil, is Adamah. And just as I have alerted you to be on the lookout for when the direction east is used, we also need to watch out what happens when the word red appears. Red is a very important color. It represents royal and majesty and blood. You've all probably heard of the red heifer. Very special animal sacrifice used to ordain priests to purify the unclean that have been made impure by touching a dead body. And in time I'm going to show you the incredible connection between Adam, the color red, the red heifer, and the shedding of Christ's blood. Now, Adam was created outside the garden. Outside of the garden, in the land of Eden, he was created in a place that was more than adequate for his needs, but God called the garden his own earthly home at this time, and he wanted man to be close to him. Inside the garden was where the tree of life resided. Life, in the sense meant here, means real life. The life that God intended for man a holy life, an eternal life. So God brought man from a good place, the land of Eden, into a better place, the perfect garden of Eden, a place of very close relationship with him. The garden was a holy place, just like heaven, 
No imperfection could live there. No sin would be allowed to pollute it. And that's just what God wants to do with us. He wants to bring us from a place that often seems sufficient, at least outwardly, for all of our needs, and to set us down in a holy place. He wants to move us. He, in fact, He wants a connection with us that's almost too fantastic to comprehend. He wants to dwell inside of us. The Garden of Eden was an earthly model of heaven. It was a physical shadow and pattern of the eternal, non-physical, spiritual, true, heavenly abode of God. And we're going to see in a few months that the Garden of Eden eventually became the model for another but future place, the Wilderness Tabernacle. This is not speculation. It's emphatically stated in the Scriptures. And what I hope to show you also is this constant parallelism, or as I call it, the reality of duality that we find in the Scriptures. It is that there are certain things on earth that are a physical counterpart of the spiritual realm. The earthly things are incomplete, of course, because the physical is so very limited when you compare it to the spiritual. We often think of it as the other way around. And when we look at the way God inserted life into Adam, we find this in verse 7, we see that God inserted into him, in Hebrew, Chaim. Chaim. Adam, at first, was a body. He was an inanimate thing formed from the dust of the earth. So in order to become a living creature, and more specifically a human living creature, he had to be injected with life. And this life, this chaim, was accomplished by means of God supernaturally breathing it into him. Okay? The Hebrew word used for breath or for breathing is nafach. And it is a root word that's good for us to understand. See, the Hebrew is a language that's constructed using a system of what's called root words. Okay. That is, the Hebrew language takes a word and gives it a meaning, and then there are offshoots of that word that gives us different words for different uses. But the different words that come from that root have a common thread that runs through them all in their meaning. They have a certain unity to them. The sense of those words stays within certain boundaries. Now let's take the word we're looking at now, nafach, which is usually translated as breathed. Just four or five words later in English, we typically get the word breath when it talks about the breath of life. The Hebrew word used there is neshma. Neshma. And just a few words later, we're told that as a result of God having nafach into Adam, the neshma of life, Adam became a living breathing. He be in Hebrew a chai nefesh. Look at the relationship between all these words: nafach, neshma, nefesh. 
Okay, They all have the same root. So they all carry this common strand of essence. And the essence is that breathing, breath, and being, as in living being, are something ethereal. Okay, Something that's not physical has caused it. Something that comes from outside of the physical realm, from outside the four-dimensional universe in which we live, that is the enabler. God is the source of life. In fact, life is in God. Life is one of His attributes. Rocks exist. Waters exist. Stars, the moon, the sun exist. They don't have life. They don't have as part of their nature an attribute of God. But living creatures do. So to this point, life isn't even exclusive to human beings. Life was put into all of God's living creatures by God Himself as an act of the divine will. Interestingly though, one of the more common words that we'll find in Scripture is soul. And even more interesting is that soul is translated from the Hebrew word we just learned, nefesh. We use this word nefesh to indicate a being, in this case a human being. So the early Jewish and then later Christian scholars all recognized that breath and being are supernatural things and they're organically connected. The condition of life comes from God. In our era, we have theories of Darwinism and all sorts of science that keeps attempting to prove that breath and being do not have to be of God. Rather, we can take things that are without life and if given enough time, under the right set of circumstances, life will simply erupt on its own without divine intervention. Well, so far, these Darwinists and scientists have had no luck in proving their theories of spontaneous life. And they never will, because that's not how it works. Let me say this again. Life, in the sense of what animates biblically defined living creatures, comes from outside of our four-dimensional universe. And by the way, bacteria and viruses, plants, these are not living creatures that needed God's breath of life. Living creatures, animals are a cut above everything else God created and humanity is another step above the animals. Is it any wonder it seems as though man is constantly searching for the connection between animals and men? What some folks just can't seem to get is that the life force that is common between animals and men has nothing to do 
with organic material interacting with electrical fields. <coughs> the common element is that this life came from God. That's the common element. Now one other item of interest about verse 7, we'll move on. It says that God breathed the breath of life into Adam. The Neshma Chaim. Neshma breath Chaim life. Now if you recall the prior lesson, you'll be curious about the structure of the word Chaim translated into English as life. Chaim is a masculine plural noun just as Elohim, Elohim being a reference to God is. The I am at the end of um, the word makes the word plural just as the I am at the end of the word Elohim makes it plural. The singular for life is Chai. Chaim minus the I am. So why don't we translate that short phrase as the breath of lives, plural, instead of the breath of life, singular. Well, just as the use of Elohim hints at God being one, but more than one, so Chaim gives us a hint at there being more than one kind of life that was put into Adam. Hebrew scholars agree that Chaim cannot possibly be one of those rare instances of the word structure called the plural of majesty, whereby the subject is singular, but it's made plural simply to denote, denote a sense of glory or majesty, like for a king. So is this possibly a hint at the difficulty theologians have had for centuries in trying to decide if the soul, generally acknowledged as the seat or essence of life, is the same thing as the spirit? Or if the spirit and the soul are two different things? Separate attributes but both coming from God, both coming from a dimension outside of our universe. I think this is possible. For one thing, the Hebrews gave a name to an invisible essence within men that also happens to be an attribute of God. And this name is entirely different than soul or living being or anything that denotes this mysterious life force that causes and sustains life. And that word is Ruach HaKodesh. Ruach means wind or breath, but it refers to that special and unique essence that connects man to God. What separates, we've talked about what makes men and animals like, but what separates men from animals? And remember that humans and animals are both living creatures, both having nefesh, is our ability as humans to commune with God, to know God, to emulate God. That unique ability comes from the spirit life 
which is somewhat different than the soul life. The soul life is what gives animation, basic life. God is spirit. And the way we have of communing with God is by spirit. Man has a spirit. No other living creature does. This is because although animals have soul life, they do not communicate or commune with God because that only happens through the spirit life. And spirit life is possessed only by human beings. By the way, in prior lessons, later lessons for others, we discussed a concept that most people thought was a New Testament concept. The concept of living water. Remember that Jesus says He is living water that takes away all uncleanliness. The Hebrew for living water is Mayim Chaim. There's that word again, Chaim. Mayim Chaim is what God says must be used as the water that Hebrews bathe in in order for them to be spiritually purified from ritual impurity. On a physical level, Mayim was, was, uh, was merely water that was taken from an artesian well or from a river. It was from a source of water that moved as, a porting, as opposed to water, say, from a lake or a pond or a water well in which the water just kind of, kind of sits there. And since Mayim Chaim was water that was used for spiritual purposes, and it refers to spiritual sources of life, then we can tie it back in with the very unique breath of life, Neshma Chaim, that animates mankind. Now I want to relate two or, quick, two or three quick thoughts to you and move along. In verse 5 we're told that God had yet to create herbs or plants on earth and the reason was there was no human created yet to till the ground. On the surface one could say well this was all about the need for a gardener. That is until one has a gardener to care for a garden you can't have plants or they won't thrive. In fact since I was a small child this is kind of how I was taught about this. But see, this places God in the position of depending on man in order for God to even have a garden. God never depends on man. Boy, I'm sure glad of that. Rather, the issue is that all of the plant life that God created was for man's benefit. Plants were to be man's sole food supply. Man was born to be a plant eater. Why have a garden if there wasn't a man to eat the produce? It'd be a waste. Until there was a man who needed the resulting purpose of the plants, there was no need for plant life. God doesn't eat. The angels don't eat. So garden wasn't for him. It wasn't for his created spiritual beings. And in the same verse, we're also told 
that the phenomenon of rain hadn't yet occurred. Now this might seem strange to us. But the reality is that God used an entirely other natural method to provide the needed moisture for plant life. Mist that didn't come down from the sky, but instead rolled upward from the ground. There was enough moisture in the ground at all times for the plant roots to grow, and that moisture formed a mist, a low-hanging fog that provided moisture for those plants that needed an intake of water through their leaves, as many species of plants do. Three, how is it that there was enough moisture in the ground to forego the need for rain? Well, the following verse tells us that springs, artesian wells that force water under pressure up from the earth's depths, bubbled up. And then once onto the surface, formed streams and rivers, which then branched out and watered the surface layer of soil throughout all the land masses on the earth. Now it's odd how some can become so bothered with this idea, but they don't seem to question that on our planet today, it is kept moist with water that just falls out of the sky, from objects that just float around in the atmosphere. That's pretty miraculous and weird to me. Now fourth, one of the rivers which were formed by water that had its source in the land of Eden is the Gihon. And it is said to water the land of Cush. Now this statement can present a problem unless we just take it at its word. The problem is that the land of Cush is generally identified as Northern Africa. Areas that today form Egypt and Ethiopia and areas like that. Now I guess the concept that a river could flow all the way from somewhere in Turkey or Iraq or Iran all the way down to the African continent is just too much to accept. But biblically, it is not likely that any other place can be identified as the land of Cush except for Northern Africa. Now, although Cush originally came from the area of Mesopotamia, little reference is even made to his presence there, except to say that Cushites, people from the tribe of Cush, lived there at one time. But a territory is named generally by the most dominant tribe who lives there. And that tribe usually has to be dominant for quite a period of time for a place to be called after it. If Cush was the dominant tribe in Mesopotamia... Why would he move lock, stock, and barrel all the way down to northern Africa? And considering the important place that Egypt would hold in God's plan for his people Israel, it's not hard to see why God might include that area as having the privilege of being watered by a mighty water whose source was in the land of Eden. But that's just my personal speculation. So God determines that Adam needs a companion. We'll finish up with this. And he creates one for him. I love this part. In Hebrew, a female, a woman, is called Isha. A male, Ish. Ish, man. 
the ending ah means out of. So ish ah means a man or better or human out of a man. Isha, by the way, is all the same also the same word used for wife. Quickly in verse 24, the concept of marriage is introduced, as well as the most important principle of marriage, which is that of a man and a wife are to be considered as if they were one flesh. In God's eyes, they are organically and most importantly, spiritually connected. Humans, we are told, are not to remain bonded to our parents. Rather, we are to bond with our mate in a way that goes beyond even the physical connection we all had at one time with our mothers. This is God's plan. And forgive me for even having to bring this up, but in the current times in which we live, I'm quite sure I'd be struck by lightning if I didn't point out that it is one male and one female who are to bond together in marriage as one flesh. Not one male and one male or one female with one female. Every attempt by some liberal theologian or agnostic or politician to say that the Bible doesn't even speak to this matter is utterly blinded by their agenda and terribly deceived. We don't have to go any further than the second chapter of Genesis to understand this incredibly basic principle of God. Verse 23, And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There is a reason that a male and a female shall form a couple, and not merely any two people, two men or two women. And it's stated right here. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, taken out of a man. Male and female human beings began, we began our life on earth as a species literally formed from one flesh. Every one of us here. And the act of marriage reunites and essentially acts out this God principle of Genesis 2, chapter 23. Or chapter 2, uh, verse 23. A wife can't be anything but a woman because her very title, Isha, means out of a man. A man didn't come out of a man. God didn't produce another male out of Adam's rib. It was a female. End of story. We'll begin chap uh, Genesis chapter 3 next week.